the word of God reads, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Keeping this in mind, we return to our text this morning, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to once again re-enter the conversation we've had with the message I've titled, To Be Called Children of God. For those of you using the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 925. And as always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. I think for the sake of context and to serve a specific purpose here, I'm going to back up and begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. So beginning there, we read, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And verse 12, our text, put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And to be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. Nancy Lee DeMoss once said, holiness is the only path to happiness. The call of holiness is often treated as an imposition, as nothing more than a requirement that we must maintain in order to keep God happy. But the call to holiness is much grander. It is much more profound. I would tell you that true contentment lies not in happiness, but true contentment is found in holiness. The Lord's call to holiness is it's a call to liberation. It is a call to freedom. If we were to just be called to happiness, we would be bound to whatever makes us happy. But a call to holiness binds us to Christ, first and foremost. Nancy Lee Wolgamuth goes on to say, Why do we make holiness out to be some austere obligation or burden to be borne? 
when the fact is that to be holy is to be clean, to be from the weight, to be free from the weight of burden, burden and of sin. Why would we cling to our sin any more than a leper would refuse to part with his oozing sores if he was given the opportunity to be cleansed of his leprosy? From Colossians 3.12, we've seen three aspects of what it means to be called a child of God. Previously, we saw last week the discussion about a child of God is one who is chosen by God. This morning, we look upon that second term. And yes, this will be a three-part sermon for three words. (laughs) That second term is holy. And by definition, that means set apart. (coughs) I call your attention upon this this morning with the intention that we would see the implications of holiness in the world in which we live. That we may find holiness not a burden, but a blessing. It's worth noting that indeed we're moving very slowly through these three aspects. There is a reason for that. There is a purpose. When we look at these words, it brings about an understanding of the words that then follow. And so we may move slowly, spending three weeks on the first part of verse 12. But it is moving slowly with a purpose so that we can understand the text. And so last week, as we noted that a child of God is chosen by God, called by God, I want you to note second that a child of God is set apart by God. Noted by that word holy, which means to separate, to set apart and consecrate. One who is chosen by God is called to be holy before God. It's worth noting, or we should understand the important point here, that the Lord does not choose a person because they are holy. He chooses a person so that they will become holy. To be holy is to be called by God, to be set apart by him and called for his special purposes. To be holy is to be called to be distinctive from the world. That meaning to set apart It is most exemplified by the Lord himself, who, by the angels in Isaiah 6-3 in our call to worship this morning, called him holy, holy, holy. He is called holy not once, not twice, but three times he is said to be holy. This threefold declaration of holy is to say that not only is God holy, It's not even to say that God is holier than other things. It is to say that God is the holiest of all things. There is nothing more holy than God. There is no person more holy than our Lord. This holiness is best pictured by the Lord's transcendence, meaning that he exists completely separate from his people. He is set apart from his people, or more importantly, he is set over his people. He sits there as ruler of creation. He is lifted up. He is residing, and residing from the highest points outside of creation. He is exalted to the pinnacle of all things. So high is God that he is unreachable by people. Hence our need for Christ. This is what it means when the Lord calls his people to be holy that they too would be set apart from the world. Though they may reside in the world, they are independent of this world, disassociated from it, and instead associated with God. 
We first see this concept in the Lord's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. We read it this morning in, De- in Deuteronomy chapter six, 7, verse 6 in our scripture reading. And it points out that God has not only chosen Israel as his own, but he has chosen them for a specific purpose, that they would be holy. Saying specifically, for you are a people holy or set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. That same concept is repeated later, virtually word for word, just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. And it states, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That ongoing repetition in such a short amount of space points to the importance of this work of the Lord. Of all the people, the Lord has chosen his people, but he has chosen them for a purpose. He's chosen them that they may be holy. And so when Paul writes in in Colossians chapter 3, put then on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Of all people, God chose Israel for this. Even today, the nation of Israel will claim to be God's special people, though many of them would also claim not to believe in God. If you look at my keys, linking them together is a particular keychain with an image of Jerusalem on them. I've carried this keychain with me now for the past 11 years because it serves as a reminder of two things. First, it does indeed remind me that Israel has been a chosen nation by God. But also in looking at them and looking at who Israel is today, it reminds me that they need our prayer just as much today. That keychain was given to me by, by our tour guide when we visited. Her name was Rebecca. And basically, Rebecca had a script for whoever she was leading. If you were Muslim, her script followed the Muslim script to teach about the sites. If you were agnostic, then she chose the agnostic script. And of course, if you were Christian then, she pulled out her from her files her Christian script to teach to you from a Christian perspective on these sites. In one breath, though, she would tell our group, we, Israel, are God's chosen people. We are a special people for God. And then in the next breath, she would say, but I don't believe in God. She could never see the conflict in those views. She absolutely believed both. Throughout our trip, I had repeated conversations with her. I talked with her many times, but there was one specific conversation with her that I still remember. In what was marked as, or what is marked as the traditional site of Gethsemane today, We sat there amidst these olive trees that were thousands of years old, and we sat on a bench, and I asked, please explain this to me. How can you hold to these two truths when you don't believe in God? And she would explain that, indeed, they were God's chosen people. And then, again, in that other instance, she would say, but she didn't believe God existed. She could never explain to me the conflicting views It's like she couldn't understand how they couldn't coexist. Basically, it came down to this. She would say, I don't believe in God, but if he comes back, I'm okay. Because God has chosen my nation. We know from scripture, that's not exactly how God works. It was here where her and I sat, that Jesus was arrested 
by those who did not believe him. Despite all his claims, despite all his miracles, and despite all the proof that he offered, Christ was still rejected by those who claimed to even speak for God. How fitting it was that we would sit in this place where we would see so clearly culture's rejection of Christ, and she too would reject Christ. What I learned, though, was that her view was common. She wasn't the only one in Israel to hold this view. In fact, it seems that many people do. Today, that rejection is made clear by Israel's conformity to the world. The Lord's choice of Israel should have also been the Lord's call to Israel. In choosing them, he chose them to be a holy people who were different from those around them. But if you look upon them today, there is no noticeable difference between Israel and the nations around them or the nations across the world. There is no distinguishing mark to distinguish them or differentiate them from others. What's interesting, though, is that before the Lord's choosing, there was nothing distinctive about them anyway. They were indistinguishable from any other nation at that time. What made them different was that God chose them. It was not until the Lord revealed his sovereign selection of them that the people of Israel became holy and set apart. They became a special people group because they were set apart for the Lord's will. And yet here in the modern era, they've reverted to a time prior where they're the same as any other. Rather than be God's chosen people, distinctive from the world, they would rather belong to the world by conforming to it. Israel, though, is representative of how a sinful humanity will respond to a holy deity. We speak of one nation, that of Israel, but what we see in Israel is no different than what we see in people around the world. And we would do well to learn a lesson from this. By setting Israel apart from all nations, the Lord reveals his purposes for all nations. It reveals his calling that all those who would follow him would be holy. As Paul clearly states in Ephesians, saying, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, excuse me, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What is displayed in the Lord's relationship with Israel is a figure of the Lord's relationship with all people. He calls people out of the world. He calls on them to be distinctive from all people by their lifestyle of conformity to the image of his son. Notice what was said in Ephesians that I just read, they were not chosen because they were holy. The Lord chose them to become holy. Again, to be holy is to be set apart from this realm and dedicated to the heavenly realm. It is differentiated from the world by being dedicated to Christ. Philip Graham Riken would tell you to be holy is to be set apart in purity. It is to be separated from what is common and ordinary in order to be devoted to God's service. Whatever is holy is distinguished from the secular and dedicated to the sacred. How is it that one is distinguished from the secular and dedicated to the sacred then? 
The answer is found in the very text we read last week from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 33. And there we see that as the Lord chose his people, he did so with the purposes that they would be conformed to Christ, that their belief and their behavior would follow Christ. And so to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, is to be like Christ. Holiness then is to repudiate evil. It is to resist corruption and to reject sinfulness. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul unveils this lifestyle of holiness. He actually begins in chapter 4, and he depicts a believer's outward display of Christ-likeness, explaining that it is produced by an inward reverence for Christ. And then the middle of this grand expose in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, he exhorts believers in Christ to live like Christ. And then he issues a warning. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, he warns with these words in almost a very solemn tone, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Because these days are evil, Paul offers a piece of advice by urging followers of Christ to make the best use of their time. That suggests that then that the days are limited, that our time here on earth is just that, a time. They will not endure endlessly. There is no assurance of tomorrow. There's not even a guarantee that we will walk out these doors after church. And so there is this pressure placed on the Christian by Paul for every believer to make the best use, the most use of his or her time. So how do we make the best use of our time? By pursuing holiness. This is, after all, the long-term goal of the Christian's physical life on earth, to pursue holiness. Where we invest our time says not just what our priorities are, but it says who we are as people. And so with this limited time before us, we have to ask ourselves, did I invest my time sufficiently enough in the pursuit of holiness? Or am I so consumed that my day is not set, is now set by the pursuit of career, by the pursuit of satisfaction, by the pursuit of authority? Or by the pursuit of my own way. Or maybe it's that by the pursuit of whatever I want to insert into there that would actually take me away from holiness. Instead, we should be able to ask, am I so consumed by God that my day is set by the pursuit of holiness? This month I've been asked to read several books. And in this stack of books were several books on productivity and working well. Some of them are biblically based, some are not. Two of those books, although they were written by two separate authors, actually assert the same principle at some point in their writing. They will use secular research, and what they assert is that those who are focused on the long term make better short-term decisions. Those who are focused on the long term then will arrange their life today based on those long-term objectives. But what does scripture teach? All of scripture teaches us to have a heavenly mindset. 
to be set on the future. And how we look at the future determines how we are today. Isn't that how Colossians 3 started? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. The Christian has a long-term mindset. That's what we're called to do. Focus not on the here and now, but on the future. Why? Because our focus on the heavenly realm of the future impacts how we live in the earthly realm of now. I don't need a secular book to tell me to focus on the long term. The Bible already tells me that is the way of a godly life. And so focusing on this future reality, we pursue holiness in these limited days. And in doing so, we do as Paul says in verse 15. We walk as wise, not unwise. But why is the pursuit of holiness so important? Why must we concern ourselves with this at all? And verse 16 gives us the answer. The days in which Paul writes are described as evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So the days in which Paul writes are evil. But the sin in Paul's era is the same sins we face today. And so we can say that those words capture the character of the world today. That the days in which we live are evil. We live in evil days. The people have rejected God, exchanging God's infallibility with man's ideology, finding contentment in the temporal rather than the eternal. These days then are evil. So how do we conquer them? First and foremost, with our heavenly mindset, we know that in the future, God will conquer all things. But we also know that God is at work now, and he uses people for that work. So how is evil conquered? And I want you to pause a moment and think about this in the context of holiness, in the context of being set apart by God. Those with a commentary on the world would have you believe that the world is an evil place as well. The politicians speaking from their platforms will decry the calamity in this present age. From behind our screens, newscasters will decry the depravity of man. And in an effort to even receive donations, even well-meaning charitable organizations will try to convince you that there is misery in this world. By their words and works, by their attitudes and actions, this world proclaims what Paul already proclaimed 2,000 years ago. They prove his point. This world is evil. It has been evil since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. But look again at Colossians 3.12. Paul's writing to believers. And it says, God's chosen ones set apart or holy and dearly loved. Holy, set apart. That is to say that those who are genuine followers of Christ, professing in his lordship and partakers in his glory, have been set apart from this evil world. Despite the depths of depravity, we're set apart if we're true believers. We need not concern ourselves in one sense of the evil. We need not conform ourselves to that evil. 
We need not worry that that evil will influence us. Because God has set us apart. And that point alone should cause us to rejoice. That point alone should bring hope to the Christian life. And ultimately, it should draw us closer to our Lord. Because it says, despite how evil the world may be, those in Christ live apart from it. And so they are prepared, really, to mount a defense more than anybody Believers living in this world are set apart from the evil that influences the world. How is it then that Christians are different from evil? What is it that makes Christians set apart from evil? They're children of God. They're set apart by God. And they're made holy by God. And so they alone can mount that defense against evil in this age. Because they have a God who is over this age. So how do we live in an evil world? By living in the holiness that is given to us by God. That we may also point other people to him. Evil is not overcome by politics. Evil will not be vanquished by polity. Evil is silenced by personal holiness. Which comes by being separated from this world and united with Christ. Where holiness is absent, evil will thrive. Where there is no holiness, there is only hatefulness. Where there is no holiness, there is only maliciousness. And where there is no holiness, there is only sinfulness. By describing God's chosen people as holy here, Paul unveils how people should be separated from the evil of this world. They are called to holiness. If holiness then is the antidote to evil of this world, then how do we give the world an injection of holiness? I want you to think about that for a second. If holiness is the antidote to evil in this world, how do we inject the world with holiness? How do we make the greatest impact for holiness? The answer is quite simple. We influence the world with holiness by first influencing our families. We find this confirmed in the book of Deuteronomy. This morning we read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we noted how the Lord had chosen Israel to be holy and set apart from the world. But I want you to look at the book prior, or at the chapter prior. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want you to see how the Lord has chosen the family as his means to impart holiness to the world. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, 
which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, hath promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. The calling to make disciples begins with our calling at home. This was set in place with Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy. And we see it continue through the New Testament. Charles Hodge, the president of Princeton Theological Seminary at one point, once stated, the head of the family should be able to read the scriptures as well as to lead in the prayer. All persons subject to the watch or care of the church should be required to maintain in their households this stated worship of God. A man's responsibility to his children as well as to God binds him to make his house a Bethel. If not a Bethel, it will be a dwelling place of evil spirits. I said, how do we inject holiness into this evil world? And I said, it begins by influencing our families. On the converse of that, if you want to break down society, you break down the family. Our God has established the family as a basic unit of society and of the church. If the family breaks down, so does the church. And if the family breaks down, so does the society. And to give you evidence of that, I give you the world. You only need to look upon society and see this truth. The family has been destroyed, and in the process, society is being destroyed as well. Hodge recognized this. He goes on to say the character of the church and the character of the state depends on the character of the family. If religion dies out in the family, it cannot elsewhere be maintained. And so if the family is the unit by which all society thrives and evil is overcome by influencing our families with holiness, who bears that charge? In one sense, all parents. But scripture also makes it clear that as the head of the family, it is the father. It is the father who has the responsibility to influence his family with holiness. If God were not first sovereign, I would tell you that the condition of our society depends upon the influence of fathers. At the basic level, that's not untrue. Or that is untrue in the sense that the Lord accomplishes all his objectives according to his will. But in another sense, that's not untrue. Ask Vody Bauckham, and he would tell you that the issue at hand in our society is not the absence of equality, it is the absence of fathers. He tells a story of many have heard in a prison ministry, and it speaks to the state of fatherhood today. It talks about one year a group had decided to provide cards for inmates on Mother's Day, and their response was overwhelming as nearly all the inmates showed up in order to sign and send cards to their mothers. The event was so successful that they decided to do it again for Father's Day. And almost no one participated. The moral or the point of this story may depend on who you ask. 
and it could have many meanings, but at the very heart of that is the discrepancy of fatherlessness, both in terms of men who are absent from their children's lives, which is also a major indicator of things like incarceration and a whole bunch of other things, but also in terms of the culture's slow, steady slide into this abyss of radical feminism and anti-masculinity. It's a two-edged sword, he says. Fathers are not there, and our culture argues increasingly that they are not necessary. And in the midst of it, we have men who are both young and old walking into fatherhood, and they do so in confusion and degradation, degradation, trying to figure out what it means. Fathers or children need you. More importantly, they don't need your inheritance. They don't need from you the latest toy, the latest gadget, or the latest trend. They don't need for you, from you assurance and affirmation alone. They don't need you to set up their future for them. Your children need from you, first and foremost, a picture of what it means to be set apart by God. Your children need from you a portrait of Christ-likeness. And your children need from you a presentation of the gospel. For most of you here, your children are out of the home. But I would tell you that doesn't eradicate your responsibility towards your children. Even if your children are no longer in the home with you, they still need your influence of holiness in your life, in their life. Richard Baxter writes, Parents, it is in your hands to do your children the greatest kindness or cruelty in all the world. Help them to know God and to be saved, and you do more for them if, than if you had helped them to be lords or princes. If you neglect their souls and breed them in ignorance, worldliness, ungodliness, and sin, you betray them to the devil, the enemy of souls, even as, he truly, even as truly as if you sold them to him. You sell them to be slaves, to Satan. You betray them to him that will deceive them and abuse them in this life and torment them in the next. With our children, then, our greatest desire is to lead our children towards Christ, that they too may be declared chosen and holy. Our children may be a success in this world, but if they've neglected Christ in that success, they are failures. They've not fulfilled, and we've not fulfilled our call to portray holiness and call them to Christ. We've failed them in that way. Our presentation of holiness may mean they don't come to Christ. That's on them. But if we've not fulfilled our role as fathers, that's on us. If you want your child, children to be liberated from slavery to this world, then help them find holiness. If you want your child to find joy, then help them find holiness. Your child's greatest need from you is your personal holiness. To be a child of God is to be called holy. And what a wonderful thing that is. Holiness is not a burden, but a blessing. Remembering Nancy LeDemas, who said, To be holy is to be clean. To be free from the weight and burden of sin, why would we cling to our sin any more than a leopard would refuse to part with his oozing sores, given the opportunity to be cleansed of his leprosy? When Paul calls the believers chosen, 
and holy and beloved in our text. He portrays the blessings of what it means to be a child of God. And one of the most generous gestures of God is to set a person apart or set them separated from the evil of this world. When we dismiss the holiness of God, we dismiss the kindness of God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we give you thanks for your presence. Thankful that you are the one that not only calls us to holiness, but you preserve our holiness. And in doing so, you help us to persevere in that holiness. Father, we are so grateful that in the depths of our sin, you provided a way out of that towards holiness, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by what it means to be holy. That in calling us to be holy, those who have truly believed on you, you've called us to be separated from the evil in this world, and we do not need to be taken down by it, Lord. We do not need to be engaged in it, but Lord, we can live in the freedom from that and from the and live in the joy that comes from that freedom, Lord. So, Father, I pray that indeed we would be committed to holiness. And in doing so, not only would we point others to you, but first and foremost, I pray that we would influence our family towards holiness, Lord. Raise us up to be parents, mothers and fathers of the children that you've given us, that we may steward them towards holiness, Lord. Recognizing this may us a call upon our life, but it is also the work of your spirit, Lord. And so, Father, we commit this time to you and commit that work of grace to you. Thankful for it. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.